All right. Hey, good morning, guys. We're going to have a lot of fun today. Uh, as you can tell, this is not going to be a normal service. It's going to be more of a lecture experience something. And just to give credit where credit is due, I do want you to know that this message is based based largely off a series of lectures that I heard in seminary by a professor named Dr. Jeffrey Bingham in a class on the development of doctrine. Hopefully this is more exciting than that sounds. Um, so but I want to give him full credit. He was uh, really formative for me. He's now up at Wheaton. Great guy. If you have a chance to pick up his books or listen to his lectures, I would encourage it. So let me pray for us and let's jump right into it. Father, uh, it's good to be in your house with your people. It's good to sing your praises. It's good to know you. Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity to be here, to know you, to have confidence in you, to know that I am forgiven because of what you did through Jesus Christ, to know that your spirit lives within me. God, I, I thank you for the opportunity to be among your people and and to see you at work in us and in our community. Pray, God, that you'd speak to us now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And the people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so this past Valentine's Day, something happened that had never happened before, at least not in recorded history, and three men in Thailand got married to each other. It was hailed as the world's first all-male thruple. Now, today, I just want to start off by saying, I don't want to comment on thruppling at all. And I have no interest in judging them one way or the other. I am fully, fully cognizant that I am a sinner who stands under the judgment of Jesus Christ, and I'm just a sinner among sinners, so I have no judgment one way or the other. What I do think is worth thinking about, though, reflecting on as a church, is not thruppling, but it's the response of the world Thruppling. Specifically, if you read the headlines after Valentine's Day, you would have seen this. Millions and millions of people everywhere celebrated it as a triumph of love. And if you had read the conservative lines throughout the world, you would have read, this is a great perversion, a sign of the times. You would have read both of those within a matter of days of this coming out as massive public news around the world. Now, I, I imagine like if you're thinking like me, you're thinking like CNN and Fox News, right? You're always going to have that type of spectrum of, of views on the same thing. So you expect that in the headlines. But what I didn't necessarily expect was that among my own friends, like my Facebook friends, like on my, on my news feed there, I saw that same extremely varied and extremely intense response. Some of my friends reposted the picture of the thruple on their Facebook page for the whole world to see, and they used words like, it is good, and it is beautiful, and it is right, and it's about time. And then some of my friends reposted that same picture on there and posted underneath it quotes from the book of Revelation. You get it? And so, what really struck me in this is that we live in a day 
that has almost no common standard of morality. Let me put it this way. We live in a day where two people, two of my friends, two people that I respect and know and grew up with can look at the exact same thing and one can see it as beautiful and one can see it as ugly. One can see it as right and true and good and one can see it as perverse and twisted and broken and both of them looking at the exact same thing have no grid to share for judging whether something is moral or good or right or true or beautiful. What might be accepted as good today, to make matters worse, might not be accepted as good tomorrow. Like if you just look over the progress of the last 50 years in America, you can name lots of things that at one time were considered right and good and true, that are now considered possibly hate crimes. Things that were once considered abhorrent, things that were actually criminalized, that are now celebrated. If you listen to our world, and you dig into it, and you're looking for what is the center of our morality, the only thing that I can find in the middle of all of that, when we start talking to all of my friends and looking at all the sources, the center of our morality is you. You have become the center of the moral universe. So what is good? It's what, what's good to you. And what is true? It's what's true to you. And what is beautiful? It's what's beautiful in your eyes. You have become the center of the moral universe. You are the standard of morality. And then when we come in here and I open up the Bible and say, Thus saith the Lord... Things get really, really weird. It gets exceedingly awkward because you, uh, you'll find that when you talk to Jesus, well, he calls things good and he never asks me if I think they're good or not. Like he'll declare truth and he'll never ask me if it's true for me. He'll say things like mutual submission and, and dying to yourself. That's beautiful. That Jesus doesn't seem to care about what you or I think about morality when he comes to those types of issues. Today, we are starting a, a series called That's Offensive. In the series, we're hoping to look at some of those particular points in the scriptures where if you compare what our culture as a majority would say is good and true and beautiful, and you compare what Jesus Christ and what God says through the scriptures, and you compare those things... Frankly, what the Bible says is going to be offensive to our culture. To make things really clear here, our goal is not to offend you or people out there. We have a couple goals in this series, and one is this, is, is, is to help us understand and talk to and love people from whatever perspective they're coming from. So if you are one of those people or if you have a friend who reposted the picture of the thruple and thought it was awesome and this is what life is about and this is good and beautiful, we want you to know and understand and love that person where they're at. And if you are one of those people or know those people who reposted that picture with hateful venom spit out underneath it, we want to understand where you're coming from. We want to talk to you and we want to love you as well. At the end of the day, we don't want to leave either of those perspectives out there, but we want to say, what's a Christian perspective? How would Jesus Christ have us respond in love and grace and truth to these situ situations? So that's one goal. 
The other goal, just to be real blunt, is to force the issue. Like, I don't know if anyone's loved you enough to force the issue for you, so I'm going to. I'm going to teach you what the Bible says so that when you come to that point of your experiences and, and how you feel and what you think is good and beautiful and true, and when it directly conflicts with Scripture, we want to put you in a safe place. Hopefully this will be a safe place where you're forced to deal with that. If you have to choose what you think is good or what God said is good, says is good, what are you going to choose? Man, that is a fight worth having, and we want you to have it in this place. Today, though, everyone take a deep breath. We are not going to do anything so noble or violent. We are going to have a history lesson. Woohoo! Today, we are going to do a brief history of moral authority in the West. Yes, everyone's excited. I know I am. <laughs> Today, I want to ask this question. How in the world did we get here? Like, how did that happen? How did you become the center of the moral universe? How is it that we can read the scriptures, what have been the authority for the Judeo-Christian world has formed us and our view of humanity and our view of life, and, and it has been the authority of what morality is for centuries. How is it now that we can actually believe that the scriptures are immoral. How'd that happen? So what we're going to do specifically, we're going to ask some questions about how do we get to a place where nobody can agree on right and wrong, on a definition of good, true, and beautiful. And today what we're going to do is we're going to go, there's a timeline. We're going to go through 2,000 years of history. And, and we're going to go back to the earliest Christians and we're going to ask them, how did you answer this question? Like, how did you know what life was supposed to look like? How, how, what was your source of, of moral authority? How did you know what good and true and beautiful is? And if you ask them, if you went all the way back to the earliest guys, like John and Paul and Peter, you know what John would say? John, tell me, how do you know what right and wrong is? How do you know what life is supposed to look like? He would say, well, that which was from the beginning, like, like the very foundation of things, the, the very foundations of reality, which we've heard and which we've seen with our eyes and which we looked at with our hands have touched. And this we are proclaiming the word of life. That life appeared and we've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John, how do you know what is true and what is right? How do you know what life is supposed to look like? And they're going to say, well, I met Jesus. Like I, I touched him and I walked with him and I embraced him and I saw him. And Jesus for, is God. Like he, he is the way, the truth, the life. He's the answer for us. He is what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. I've met Jesus. You say, okay, well, what about, what about the other guys? Paul, what are you saying? Paul says, well, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, the message I proclaim to you, that I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. How do you know what you know? How do you know what's true? Paul, I said, I, Jesus told me. Oh. One more. Peter, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. If you ask John and you ask Paul and you ask Peter, how do you know what is good and true and beautiful? They're going to say one word. 
Jesus. He is the author of life. He's the source of all things. He is our God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know what goodness is, if you want to know what truth is, if you want to know how life is supposed to be lived, if you want to know what is wholeness and what is beauty, and if you want to understand the universe, then you need to know him. Of course, this brings us to one little problem. A little problem. Jesus ascended into heaven. And none of us have the opportunity that they had to walk with him, to touch him, to see him, to eat with him, to be with him. And so in order to understand what happens after the time of Jesus, in order to understand what happens from Jesus on after he ascends into heaven, we're going to do a little experiment here. We're going to walk through time of how the earliest Christians did it. But for this part, I'm going to need four volunteers. Now, let me just warn you up front. You volunteers, you're going to be up here for the rest of the sermon. So I need kinetic learners, people who'd rather be part of a sermon than listen to a sermon. If that, if that is like, that's me, I want you up here, all right? So any volunteers, come on up. I've got four chairs and four signs. All you're going to do is you're going to stand and you're going to be movable props. Anyone? I got one, two, three. I need one more. Pops, all right. Come on up. So... Scripture, I need you to sit right here. You hold this. And you will be, you will be tradition. Actually, no, no, no. You're going to be reason. Pops, you are tradition. Yes, yes, you are. And then, did I have one more? Yes. Oh, I've got experience coming. When we go to the earliest Christians and ask, What is the basis of morality? How do you know what life is supposed to look like? What is good and beautiful and true? The first answer they would always, always give is Scripture. Come up here, Scripture. What are you doing all the way back here? Scripture, you have to stand right here. All the way in front. Right right here so we're still in the light. Scripture, you got to be big and proud. Scripture, you always have to be first and foremost among us. We always want to look at you first, Scripture. You know what? You know what the earliest Christians believed about Scripture? It's 2 Timothy, what is it? 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Right? So, so what does that mean? What is that? That's a picture of, it's like, how do you make a word? How do you make a word uh, that you, you first, you take in a breath, And then you exhale and it goes over your vocal cords. And then you form a word. Pretty. So, so this is the way they viewed scripture, right? So God takes a breath. And over the vocal cord of the apostles and prophets, it, it vibrates and it forms these words. We know as the scripture forms these words. And every time scripture speaks, if you listen, if you listen for the word of God, it will say one word over and over again, Jesus. Say Jesus, scriptures. So if you listen, scriptures will always, if you read them properly, if you listen closely, you will hear every single time, Jesus. Jesus. That's what scriptures are going to say. So what do you, how do you know what is good and true and beautiful? It's still Jesus, but now we hear Jesus through the scriptures. But here's the problem. Earliest Christians, they, found, they ran into this problem again and again, that people would twist the scriptures. They would make it say whatever they wanted to say. That it's not safe to leave the scriptures by themselves because people could take it and they wouldn't say, they, the scriptures would start saying other things. And you're like, no, if it doesn't say Jesus, it's not the scriptures. So tradition, 
what are you doing back there? You got to come up here, tradition. Now, here's the thing, though. Tradition, no, 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 not that close. You're, you're going to be close, but you're right here. See, tradition is going to stand right beside scriptures, but tradition is not going to take the place of scriptures. Tradition's behind scriptures. Now, now, I don't know what you guys think of when you hear the word tradition. Most of us have these big convoluted thoughts, but let me be clear. that For the earliest Christians, tradition was nothing more than the way that Christians read and practiced the scriptures. Tradition was the way that the earliest Christians read and practiced the the scriptures. So when you talk about the content of tradition in the earliest church for the first three, almost 400 years, you could fit all of the traditions, the official tradition, capital T, of the early church on this one sheet of paper. Here you go, tradition. You need to hold that. You know what's on there? It's going to be like the Trinity, Jesus is God and man. Jesus is the only way to heaven. The Bible is the word of God. There's going to be a little bit about church structure, a little bit about how you practice communion, baptism. But that's it. It's basic, basic Christian stuff. So here's the deal. So I'm medieval Paul. Medieval Paul comes up and he says, hey, I would like to take, I'd like to take the scriptures out on a date. I want to be alone with the scriptures. Just me and the scriptures. We're going to go off. We're going to do some stuff. And I sit down with scriptures and I open up scriptures and I read Colossians 1.15. And what does that say? says, he is the firstborn among all creation. And I get all by myself and I say, Jesus is the firstborn. Well, firstborns are born. That means, obviously, that Jesus was created. That Jesus is the first created being. That's what it means. And then what happens? If it works properly, tradition, big tradition says, hey, hey, little guy, I got some news for you. You're not treating the scriptures properly. When we read scriptures, we read it the way that the apostles and prophets and and Christians all down through the ages have always read it. And they've always, always understood that Jesus is uncreated, that he's eternal, that he was not, there never was a time when he was not. So when you come to scriptures, you have to take tradition along. So think of it as a chaperone. So I have a little girl, seven, and one of these days... Reality is, when she's 19 or 20, I'm going to have to let her go on a date. And so, it's going to be ugly, but I've already planned it out. I'm going to sit down, and when the guy comes, we're going to sit in a dark room, and I'm going to be cleaning my gun. And as I'm looking through it, I'm going to explain to him, in the Old Testament, if a man defiled another man's daughter, he was to be stoned to death. And I still believe that. And once we have an understanding, I'm going to say, okay, you want to take my daughter on a date? That's fine. But here's the rule. Jenny and I, we just happen to be free tonight. We're going to be your chaperones. Woohoo! So that's great news. So, he, so what's the role of the chaperone? I'm going to say, I'm not going to get in the way. My job is to not go on a date with you. I don't want to go on a date with you, kid. My job is to make sure you treat my daughter in an honorable way. That's the role of tradition. Huh? I picked some good tradition here. Like, you can do, you are invited to spend all the time you want with Scripture. Go to Scripture, read Scripture, love Scripture, do whatever you want with Scripture. But when you do, tradition should come along. It's not going to be much, it's just this little piece of paper, but when, when you do, tradition should come along. Okay? Well, that wasn't it, though. If you go back, though, and you read through the early Christians, you realize that, reason, what are you doing back there? Come up, you have a reason. Actually, reason, no, let's put you right over here. 
Let's put reason, reason is going to come right over. Now, reason, here's the deal with reason. Everyone knows that you need to, to, to plumb the depths of things, and you need to think through things, and you need to be logical. But for the early Christians, they always understood it as faith-seeking reason. The, the whole point of reason was, was to plumb the depths. These were mysteries that no mind could really unfold or understand. That reason is to serve in the reading of Scripture. The reason is to serve tradition. That reason comes and plumbs the depths of what they give us because we could never create God as triune. We could never create that God became a man. We could never create the inspiration of Scripture. Those things we could never think up. Our mind cannot contain. So we just use that to plumb and then experience Experience, you stand, but you stay right here. <laughs> now, experience, you notice you can, most of you probably can't even see experience. Everyone has always said experience is essential to this equation. No one denies that. Your experience with God is absolutely crucial. But what the earliest Christians noted is that sometimes experience goes crazy. Sometimes experience tells us exactly the wrong things. Sometimes experience leads us in exactly the wrong way. Sometimes experience loves what it shouldn't love and hates what it shouldn't hate. So, so experience, we want you to be part of the equation. You're still part of this, but you got to st- stick in back here. All right, so this is the earliest Christians. And then what happens is, is as we go along in time, we go down the timeline, and this is for the first three, four hundred years, the church starts growing, and something in particular happens to tradition. As the church grows... Well, tradition grows. First, he gets these really cool outfits. Oh, this is going to be pretty. Oh, look at that. And then, can, can, can you hold? We get icons for tradition. Can you hold that? And then we get these big crosses. Can, and that's kind of heavy. And then we've got a few books. Can, can you hold that? Thanks. And then, I always like candles and incense. And then, I have a whole box of relics here. So, I want you to hold this too. Actually, if you need to set that down, go ahead. But the point is, is that when Christians now want to come to the scriptures, they, they can't get around tradition. Like tradition standing in the way. And in fact, at a certain point, tradition is blocking people from getting into the scriptures. And at one point, the church leaders are so afraid that people are going to misunderstand and misinterpret, misuse scriptures, that they don't even let people read scriptures anymore. Scriptures will be left in Latin. You're not to read it by yourself. We're going to read it for you through tradition because we're afraid what you'll do. So this goes on and on. For hundreds of years. I want you to understand that this, this starts 33 AD, but we're talking, we go over a thousand years, this order starts growing and growing and multiplying until we come to this particular point, 1517. And what happens is, is in the 1300s, something starts twisting where the scriptures get so shoved back that something happens that has never happened before. Something happens that should never even be possible. Something happens that is unfathomable to the early church. And this is what happens. Tradition contradicts scripture. So that happens and the church goes into this time of moral decay like never before. Two popes and things are splitting and the gospel's perverted and all of this stuff is breaking out until nothing really happens until the late 1400s, early 1500s. There's a pope arises who has a dream of building the world's greatest church, a church unlike ever before seen, the biggest church never to be topped in the whole universe. You may have heard of it. It's called St. Peter's Basilica. Now, here's the problem. If you're going to build that church, you need money and you need lots of it. It costs um, what would, in today's terms, be multiple years of the entire world economy 
In today's terms, we're like talking trillions of dollars. So how do you raise that money in that day? Pope's like, I, I know. I can forgive sins. If I could just sell the forgiveness of sins, that's the best way to raise money. So what he does is he goes out and sends these salesmen all across the empire. And he says, you know what? If, if you give me money, in fact, they got a little jingle for this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Huh? Kind of catchy, huh? And so people all over, this happens all over until this comes to 1517 and this in, in Wittenberg, Germany. And there's this little Augustinian monk, a Bible professor, who's been reading all the ancient tradition. He's been reading all of the scriptures. He's been studying this. And he hears this. He sees all these peasants giving all their money, trying to buy the forgiveness of sins. And he says, are you kidding me? I've studied the scriptures, I've read the ancient traditions, and this is a complete perversion of the gospel. That you cannot pay for the forgiveness of sins. The whole point of the gospel is that Jesus paid it all. That it costs something that you could never pay. It costs the death, the shed blood of the eternal Son of God. That that's the only true payment for forgiveness of sins. So in October 31st, 1517... This little monk would take a, an academic track, 95 theses, 95 articles of what he believed was wrong with what was going on. And he took this, it was written in Latin, and he nailed it to the cathedral door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And that day, what happened was, is it was just an academic track written in Latin, but some of his students took it down. They translated it into German so that everyone can read it. And they took it to this newfangled thing called the printing press. Suddenly, copy after copy after copy was made, and it was sent out. So suddenly, everyone all across the empire is reading these articles by this angry little monk who says the Pope's wrong, who says that you can't pay for the forgiveness of sins, who says that this is wrong, that tradition should never contradict Scripture, that tradition shouldn't be holding all of this. And so something happens. <laughs> exactly. Something happens that we call... The Reformation. This is when men like Zwingli and Calvin and Luther come, and they come to tradition and say, tradition, you got to take this off. Tradition, you got to set all this down. Tradition, you got to get back to, the, where's just the one-sheet tradition? This is what we need, we need you to get back to. And they, they try and put tradition back in its rightful place, and they try and push Scripture. you got to be all the way in front. If there's one way that we know what is good and true and right and beautiful, it's through the Scriptures. This is where we hear... Jesus, we got to hear Jesus again. And tradition, you're messing all of this up. So they try and do that. But what happens is effectively, by the end of the Reformation, tradition is so intertwined with these myths and these false things and these twisted up things that, that eventually, not the reformers, but the Western world as a whole says tradition, we appreciate you, but we really don't. Why don't you go back and say it? And so tradition takes a seat, and no longer is tradition invited to the conversation. So the reformers say, that's okay, though. We don't need tradition anymore. We have the scriptures. So scriptures, we want you to come all the way over here. Come right up here. You come front and center. Now, as we move ahead in this brave new era, scriptures is going to lead the way. The, and reason and experience, you're going to come along, too. 
You're going to come along too? Uh, experience, you stay there. Reason though, you, you come out and then what happens is, is we, there's this void. Like how do we read scriptures? If I want to go on a date with scriptures, who's going to keep scriptures safe? Who's going to keep me safe? They say, ah, reason, where have you been? Reason, you come on up. Reason, you're going to take the place of tradition. And so reason, what happens is from 1517 on, you're going to see an explosion of Bible knowledge, unlike ever before. People are going to read the scriptures in their own language, in Latin, in Greek, in Hebrew. They're going to study the text. They're going to study the doctrines, unlike ever before. And it's beautiful. But something else happens. An explosion of heresy. So if reason is leading you to scriptures and you sit down and you say, like they're saying there's one God who exists in three persons, is, is that reasonable? They're saying that the God of the universe who contains all things is also in one local place, in one man, that there's a God-man. Is that reasonable? They're saying that the scriptures themselves are God-breathed. Is that reasonable? Let's just stop right here for a second. We have covered... Over 1,500 years of history. And now this is how we read the Bible. This is how we think of things. Let's, let's pull this back right to here. And at this point, this is the point in time when people ask, how do you know what is good and true and beautiful? We fast forward 1,500 years. Scripture led the way with tradition. Tradition gets dumped off and then things start changing quickly. In 1619, just 102 years after Wittenberg, there's a rainstorm. And there's this 23-year-old brilliant young mathematician. And he wants to get alone with his thoughts. He wants to get to a place where he can just be utterly alone. And, and the story goes that he actually went into a room. We're not sure if it's a small room with a stove or if it was actually a stove. But some people think he actually climbed in to a little stove and there by himself, completely alone, sat in the stove, and some say for multiple days, according to his own story, and that he fell asleep in that stove, completely isolated from the world, just him and his thoughts, and he fell asleep and had these wild dreams. He'll actually say two dreams and a nightmare. And when he awoke from those dreams and came out of his complete isolation, he said, I need you two to move apart for a minute. Yeah, keep, keep, keep moving. Oh, stop right there. I, I have something. Um, I have something. It's, I think, therefore, I am. With that, from those dreams, he felt, I am going to reform all knowledge. I'm going to reform, completely restructure the order of how we know what we know, how we determine good and beautiful and true. I'm with that one sentence going to change the course of the world. I'm going to come up with something completely new, something we call modern. And we see it in this one sentence, this, this, this age of modernity, this age of enlightenment that's going to begin with this one sentence is going to be an age of optimism. The belief that reason can take us to places that nothing else could take us. That reason can answer all of the questions. The reason, if we trust in it, if we follow it, it can solve all of humans' ills. It can let us know God himself. And this one sentence captures it. The description of modernity. I, I... 
about individualism. This is the rise of the individual over the community. That if you want to know what is best, if you want to know what is good, if you want to know what is true, you look first to yourself, to you. You are the center of the moral universe. You are the source of good and true and beautiful. You. It's about I, individualism. And it's I do what I think. It's rationalism. That reason is superior to any other source. That reason can lead us where nothing else can lead us. That reason can take us to new heights and solve all of humanity's problems. And it is am. It's in the present tense. called this presentism. That what's best is whatever's newest. So in the past, we spent all of our times when we asked, what should we do? Let's look to the past. Let's look at tradition. Let's look at what they did. Let's look at what our forefathers did. And, and every time we did that, the, the question they would ask is, where did that get us? It was terrible. So let's not look to the past anymore. Let's always look to the future. Let's look to the present. What, what's the best book to read? It's the latest book. Why would you read something that's hundreds of years old when someone posted a blog this morning? So it is about individualism, about rationalism, and about presentism. And with that... This whole order is going to get reset so that reason is going to come to the very front of the line. Scripture is going to come, and it's going to be placed right back here. And experience, you're going to move in right next to Scripture. So I want you to see this now. Reason is now going to lead the way. It's going to answer all of our questions in Scripture. We're going to keep Scripture on there. We still like Scripture. It's going to be part of our, how we feel about things. And we're going to give Scripture hugs, and we're going to read it for devotional thoughts. But if you want to make any real decisions in your life, like where you're going to work or what you should do or how to solve a problem or if you should get married or not. If you want to make any real decisions, you're going to go to your reason. You're not going to go to Scripture. Scripture is to make you feel warm and fuzzy. If you want a picture of how a rational person deals with Scripture, it is Thomas Jefferson. You guys know Thomas Jefferson, right? He actually took his Bible. He liked his Bible. He loved his Bible. He read his Bible all the time. And in fact, the only thing he didn't like about it is that it was so darned unreasonable and so he went in, and he actually went in and took out all the passages like, a guy was swallowed by a large fish. Cut that out. Um, Jesus walked on water. Cut that out. I mean, all the miracles. All, and you take all of that out, and he actually made the Jefferson Bible, which is a Bible that is just about under reason, is all about his experience. It's about being a good person, and it's about helping orphans and widows, and it's about loving other people. And we're going to keep all of that, but that's not really going to inform our major decisions in life. And what happens is over time, though, that Scripture gets so privatized and so personalized and so just emotional feeling of how we deal with it that eventually, in this time period, moving into the 16th and 17th and 18th century, Scripture, we like you, but we really don't want you to be part of the discussion anymore, and you can go sit down. And here we're left. And for the 16 and 17 and 1800s, this looks really promising, right? We have romanticism coming up. We have all this enlightenment reason. Like enlightenment, reason does great things for us. Let's, let's not lie. I mean, it saved us from all those myths. Fairies and gnomes and trolls and all that stuff, right? It saved us. It gave us real medicine. It gave us real discoveries. It gave us real answers to life's questions. So we liked reason a lot. And then everything was working out perfectly until the early 1900s. What happened in 1914? Anyone? World War I broke out. The war to end all wars. And we say, reason, you were supposed to give us peace. Reason, you were supposed to solve all of the world's problems. But now, instead of peace, during World War I, Reason now gets a new picture. Reason gives us machine guns. and gives us 
chemical weapons that now we have the ability to kill each other at a rate that we never imagined before. In 1916, in the Battle of Solm, in one day, because of reason, 60,000 people died in one day. The world had never seen anything like that. Then 20 years later, in the center of the most rational, enlightened, educated people in the world, in the center of Germany, the center of philosophy and art and theology, became the center of the world's greatest atrocities. In 1939, we have the Holocaust and World War II. And what does reason give as a finishing gift for that? Reason gives us this picture. The ability to kill millions of people instantaneously. So what happens is then, after all these years of history, experience, come over here. Come, come sit with me. I want you to sit right there in the light, experience. So here we are. We're sitting in a French cafe. It's the 1960s. Je m'appelle Paul. Je suis français. And we're sitting there and we're smoking like skinny cigarettes and wearing berets and, and, um, and we're entirely disgruntled and unhappy because we're French. (laughs) And we're talking and we're looking over at Reason and we're like, Reason! Reason! What have you done for us? Like, we, we trusted you, Reason. We gave you everything. We thought you were our hope and our salvation. But Reason, you've killed us. We're in France at the time. France has been decimated by two major world wars. And then who do we see in the cafe? Well, there's Jean-Paul Sartre. There's uh, uh, Lyotard and, and Foucault and Derrida and all these. You may not know the names, but you know their work. They're artists. They're philosophers. They're people who've shaped our culture in the last 70, 80 years. And they're sitting there and they're having this discussion like, what are we supposed to do? How do we know what is good and true and beautiful? In fact, they say, you can't even answer that question anymore. You know why? Because any way you answer that question, it's all about control. If you try and make a moral statement, you're trying to control us. If you, we trusted tradition and it took all of our money. We trusted scriptures and it said all these crazy things. We trusted reason and it tried to kill us. Reason, you can go sit down. And so we're sitting in a French cafe, just us and experience. And I say to experience, experience, what is good? And experience says, what is good to you? I say, experience, what is true? It says, well, what's true to you? What is beautiful? What's beautiful to you? Today, we live in a postmodern world, a world that has given up on all of scripture and tradition and reason to define our morality so that at the center of our moral universe is you. As a society, we recognize no moral authority beyond the individual. And the closest thing we have to a moral absolute in our society is this. If it makes you happy, then who am I to judge? And let me tell you, if that is our only moral authority, then we have no hope at finding what is truly good, what is truly beautiful, or the truth. Church, if we want to be part of God's mission, part of making the earth as it is on earth as it is in heaven, then we cannot embrace the vacuous moral culture of our world. 
We cannot. If we want to be of any moral help, if we want to show the world what life is supposed to be like, if we want to show the world what truth is, who he is, his name is Jesus, if we want to show the world what beauty is, the beauty of God, the beauty that stands apart from everything else, if we want to show the world what is good, then Scripture you have to be first and foremost. Come back up here, Scripture. Scripture, you have to be front and center. You have to be before us at all times. If, if we are possibly going to know who Jesus is, what truth is, what is good, then we have to stop. We have to listen to Scripture. We have to put Scripture first, and we have to hear it say, Jesus. Jesus. And you know what? We have to actually bring tradition back. Not all of tradition, but even tradition. Tradition, we need you. Like, we can't do this alone. We need help. We don't need all of this stuff, but we, we need this sheet of paper. We need to know that there's one God and three persons, that, that Jesus is God. And man, we need help. We need to listen to the past of the church. We need to listen to our forefathers. We need to take that along. And reason, we like you, reason. We want you. But let me tell you, reason, you're going to stand right here. That ultimately, reason cannot be over and above the scriptures or tradition. These are mysteries that we seek to understand, that we want to plumb, into, plumb the depths of. But, but we, ultimately, we cannot be the judge of scriptures because the scriptures show us Jesus and he is our judge. And then experience, you're invited to. I mean, what would we be without our experience? Our experience is an essential part of, of the Christian, of, of how we know the proof beyond proofs. So church, let me say, as we go into this series and as we come to these passages of scripture that in our culture are going to be utterly offensive, let me, let me just suggest to you as we piece this together and we try and talk to people who are speaking only out of reason or only out of experience or only out of tradition or only out of scripture, that, that we want to be a people that puts all of these together, that we want to go back to the way the early church did, not always perfectly, but holistically. That first and foremost is scripture and then tradition and then reason and experience. And when we put these pieces together in a world that is utterly confused and has no way to tell whether something is right or wrong, confused or, or, or makes sense, whether it's good or bad, whether it's beautiful or ugly, that we can be a people who show the world this is truth. His name is Jesus. And this is beautiful, the way he says to live our lives. Let me show you something good. When we know it, we can share it and we can make the earth more like it is in heaven.